I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Tim Kring, and uh, we're at Sunset Gower Studios uh, on the, uh, I guess, the offices of Heroes Reborn. It's great yes. to see you, Tim. Thank you. And we've caught up in some exotic places, uh, from Soho House in, in LA to uh, is- right, Istanbul, Istanbul. Uh, around the Bosphorus. But, uh, it's Dining really- <laughs> on, the, on the shores of the Bosphorus together. That's true. It's, it's and all- now in these beautiful, decaying offices <laughs> of, of a... 90-year-old studio. I've got to say my whole impressions of what um, the backstage of a big Hollywood production would look like have been completely decimated. Yeah, I think people, uh, you know, fantasize about what it's like to work in Hollywood and it always, you know, (laughs) it's now you are finding found space often in warehouses and (laughs) abandoned buildings and wherever we can, you know. It, it, it's exciting that this show has come back, and and I think in many ways um, it, it's kind of a a metaphor for Hollywood's changing understanding of how audiences are consuming content in new ways. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Because I think it's quite interesting, really. I guess the motivations behind the, the yeah the, genesis of the show. The interesting thing with with Heroes was that we when we first aired, uh, you know, the audience, especially the kind of audience that was attracted to Heroes, the demographic that was attracted was younger and more tech savvy and more connected, um, not only, you know, to to each other, but to the internet and and, um, social media and all of that. Um, And the old paradigm of of watching a show when it was on and when it was aired, uh, you know, by the networks started to shift around the last time that we did the show. And that audience started finding the show when they wanted it, where they wanted it, how they wanted it. And in many ways, we were providing them, because we were fishing for those fish, we were trying to to send content to places where the audience was. So we were sending it to mobile and online, and we were providing a way to watch the show with extra content, with commentary from the actors and from the directors, and trying to make it this this more immersive experience that you could find on your own time and sure enough they went out and did that yeah and it pirated the 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 ratings of the show in the in the traditional sense well heroes was one of the first transmedia case studies exactly and we you know this was born out of an idea that that audience was starting to migrate um online and on mobile and the network was desperate to try and figure out how to get those viewers to come back and so the idea was well let's go out and find them let's make sure that they are that we always have a kind of tether back to the mothership of the show so that when they go off and find this contact something about that content leads them back to the to the show Um, you know the problem is the the old-fashioned model of a network television which is a single source of revenue business where they sell advertising, it doesn't help them when the audience watches it in another way. And so they, it has to be able to come back. Well, now, in you know, since Heroes was on the last time, we're able to, or the networks are able to measure those audiences by um, 
live plus three, live plus seven. So in other words, anything that the audience, you know, any way that the audience watches the show, especially in DVR time shifted kind of way. Um, gets counted now by the advertisers. Well, what do you mean by live plus three, live plus seven? Well, the live meaning the day that, that it airs on network, right. and then the plus three is three days afterwards if they watch the show and we're able to see that they watch the show. Then that counts as metrics for the advertisers because those commercials were still somehow right. viewed. You know, the problem with commercial television is that commercials are very often time sensitive and we don't realize it as consumers but many you know many many commercials are time sensitive it's a movie that's that's airing this weekend or a sale that's happening on Saturday um, or uh, you know a sales month for a car or a politician that wants to get elected or a politician <laughs> that wants to get elected exactly these are hmm. time sensitive advertising and so it doesn't really help if you set your DVR and watch that show you know, a month later or in the summer when all of them yeah. are stacked up. And unfortunately, this is the this is the big dilemma for, for network television is that these viewing habits um, that cable television, who does not have the same constraints, um, they've taught the audience how to watch these things in these binge kind of ways. This is, a, this is the dilemma for network television, which is still has a model that needs to be consumed much you know, much sooner, and and those commercials have to be somehow, you know, valuable. <laughs> but but the networks obviously retrospectively did the math and must have then realized that Heroes was one of the most popular shows at the very time when they actually canceled. Yeah, and at the t right at the time that it was canceled, it was um, the last full season that we were on the air. Um, we were the number one most downloaded uh, show in the in the world, and one of the most streamed shows and one of the highest DVR shows, time-shifted shows, as well as selling, you know, uh, a lot of DVDs, <laughs> you know, uh, upward of 2 million DVDs in the wow. final season alone. Um, we've sold over 10 million of the, of the four seasons at this point. So that's a lot of people out there watching the show in, an, in a way that the network couldn't, um, couldn't count for the advertisers. Right. And so... Rather than a failed, you know, television show, it was really a very potent brand. Yeah. Um, and so, I think the new regime that that came in sort of analyzed those uh, those numbers and realized that there was there was still a very potent audience out there for the for the show. There are some differences this time. I mean, it's thirteen episodes rather than twenty-two. Right. So, so have there been other things that are, that are changing in television landscape? You know, since that's, that's happened? the. Yeah, I have to say that is the big one. The big one is the way that the audience is now consuming, especially the more serialized kind of storytelling, which seems to be you know serialized storytelling really has the ability. It's like long form cinema. Yes, it's like the it's you know like the novel mm. or, or um, you know it's it's taken the place of in many ways of reading the great book you know when you meet people you know at a dinner party or you know in a social setting it very often comes up well yes I'm only on you know I'm only on episode six but I uh, you know I have four <laughs> more to go and I'm, I'm almost done with that season and um, so this form of binge watching has actually um, it become kind of the optimal 
or has determined the optimal length for these things in right. the same way that a you know when you hear a song on the radio it's not nine minutes long um, and and a book isn't five thousand pages and a movie isn't six hours long well a television series a season of television seems to be an optimal length for the audience seems to be somewhere in that you know eight to thirteen episode range and this idea of these longer 22 24 25 episode seasons are harder and harder for the audience to to kind of get behind in the short attention span especially if you've got a, like a long arc especially with a long arc and and there's also this idea of scarcity that i think the audience likes or needs with these with a beloved kind of you know you know show or brand it seems that the audience wants a kind of built-in scarcity to that they hmm. want to know that it's going to end and they're going to have to wait a little while longer for the next installment and it makes that desire for the show greater i think you know when jk rawlings told the world that she was only going to write seven of these books she did from the very beginning she said i'm only going to write seven of, of yeah. these books and so you knew when you were reading the fifth harry potter that there was something very precious about it uh, because there were only two more and books it, left. And in this genre before, these fantasy writers would write it until people had no idea who the characters were. Yes, exactly. And you <laughs> have, it was like you a know, soap opera. The longer that you, uh, you know, drag a story out, the more, uh, the, the sort of less, um, the more uh, opportunities to screw it up. <laughs> and, and so there is a... And, and with making a television show, especially because the the nature of a big uh, kind of production heavy special effects show, they're they're getting harder and harder to make, um, you know, in these longer orders because they're just so damn hard to make. Mm -hmm. And the audience has really decided that something like Game of Thrones becomes a benchmark of quality. It's very hard to, you know, to do something that had that that doesn't fill or fulfill that same satisfaction. And so those episodes those big episodes of Game of Thrones are just so huge and they take so long to make mm. um, and they cost so much money and we've all gotten used to that as sort of the standard bearer for what, what television can look like uh, you, and for the audience it's they don't really di they don't really discriminate uh, where it is on the you know on TV or when it is um, so it's just one click away from something else um, and all they know is one looks really great and one looks really crappy. And they don't really care that one costs $20 million and the other costs $3 million. All they know is that one doesn't look as good as the other. And it's, so it's, we're, we're now forced, you know, uh, to, to sort of keep up with, to try and maintain the, the, the quality as much as possible. And that becomes really, really difficult to do when you're doing 22, 23, right. 24 episodes a year. And it's ironic because when we, we first were looking at the impact of the internet on, on entertainment, there was an assumption that if it was online, people would accept lower quality material. Right. Uh, when you look at the early web shows. Yeah. But but now, you know, with the rise of, you know, HBO yeah, and Netflix, Netflix yep. uh, I mean, streaming has, if, in anything, created the demand for higher quality. Exactly. Material. And the, 
you know they are they are not bound by the same constraints as as um, as a traditional network, and um, so those metrics, you know, for them to deem something a success, it's much easier. Um, perception is is success. Buzz is success. Hmm. Um, a show on network TV like like Heroes can have buzz and perception, but if it does not have the ratings, it's deemed a failure. So hmm. you can never. You can't just declare victory and walk away, <laughs> um, you know, just because you're, you've got a lot of, you know, sort of people online chatting about you. Whereas, you know, a show on, the, on, on cable, um, it's in a sense a bit of a loss leader to get more people to come to the store to shop. So um, they just need that buzz and that perception and people will sign up for another month of HBO. When you look at the the next generation coming through um, who are encountering your shows and your brands and your universes, what new disruptive behaviors are you seeing now with this group? Uh, If you look at the original heroes, mobile, piracy, this was very new. So what do you feel is the next wave of of change we're going to see in in viewership? Well, mobile is really still continues to be the thing that I think is going to, that's that's the one that's marching forward into the future the idea that we are all have these very sophisticated devices now that we carry um, with larger better screens um, and the behavioral habits of younger people who are watching content um, primarily uh, sadly I think um, uh, they're watching content that is not very well produced and they're watching content that they're getting from each other much more than from you know sort of professional right. filmmakers and storytellers. This is the rise of all the internet celebrities on YouTube. Yes right? exactly and so so they are now getting used to watching you know my 15 year old son can spend you know quite a bit of time staring at his, his phone and watching this very cheaply made very short um, form content that has an authenticity to it that he likes um, and he somehow you know he is maybe a little more sophisticated because he's also able to enjoy a big you know budget movie and understand where the difference but the fear is that you know the audience is getting so used to this uh, you know small non-story driven content um, that you know somehow along the way we're going to become less relevant uh, but my my hope is that at some point that's going to n- not be enough for them you know they get to a certain age and I don't know what that age is but <laughs> they get to a certain age where they realize staring at this little you know four inch screen in my in my palm of my hand is not actually satisfying my need to understand you know the archetypal nature of storytelling that tells me what the world I, is. I hope so too you know I used to work for a newspaper and there was a prevailing theory there that this next generation on the internet the minute they turned 30 and got a mortgage and kids they would go back to reading newspapers again uh-huh, right well <laughs> but it never quite panned no, out that no, way no I know and you know this this idea of change is so um, overwhelming to think about yeah. um, and especially when I have one foot so steeped my day job is so incredibly steeped in a very old model of of making content yes we're using digital cameras now and yes the lighting packages can fit in a van instead of three trucks you know and yes we're we're able to do amazing things on a laptop 
on the set as a special effect that used to take a month to do. Yes to all of that. But the basic idea of putting actors in front of a camera, um, going on location and, and, uh, and filming, sitting in a dark room to edit and building the story piece by is exactly the same thing as has been done for you know over a hundred years in Hollywood and there's something very comforting about that mm. but it also you are aware that the world outside of this bubble that I live in is moving very very quickly and uh, you know I do still believe that story and the ability to tell story um, and to tell it in a compelling way is a commodity that is necessary for us as as humans and the the ubiquity of the you know the camera the digital camera the fact that you have a phone everybody on the planet you know has a phone with a camera in it or not everybody but you know it's, we're getting there the ubiquity of that does not mean that everybody is a is a, a filmmaker you know mm. um but in we, the all same way we all that, respond to stories, though. Right. In the same way that the, you know, the ubiquity of the pencil didn't mean that everybody was Hemingway. You know, you, there are still a skill set involved in the idea of telling story. And uh, my hope is that as human beings, we still respond to this archetypal need to have stories that define who we are and you reflect back our lives and teach us and all, all of that. So... You know, my hope is that that seed that's sort of planted in all of us from a very early age to to want to view the the world through the lens of of narrative um, is going to keep my job relevant. <laughs> <laughs> when I look at the stories that you have told over the years, uh, one of the predominant themes is this idea of interconnectivity. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, how you recognize that in your work and, and what sort of you know what its origins were? You know, I'm not sure where the origins of it were. Um, I, I was always, you know, fascinated by, um, you know, novels that had these sort of long arcing scope to them where characters would find one another at the, you know, that sort of Dickensian idea of a character that shows up at the end. From the, you know, those sorts of things were very intriguing to me. I, I saw... Um, uh, in the mid-90s, I think, I can't remember when it was. No, it was probably earlier. God, yeah, it was probably a lot earlier, early 90s. I I had um, an occasion to see um, Kieslowski's uh, Decalogue, mm -hmm. um, which is a 10-episode, made for Polish television, 10-episode um, sort of miniseries, with each episode loosely based on, on one of the Ten Commandments. And if you watched them as a whole, you you started to realize... They all sort of centered around a, uh, an apartment complex in, in Warsaw, and the characters that lived in one apartment would, four episodes later, enter somebody else's story and in a very minor way. But you had already seen their story in, in a previous episode, and you were invested in who they were, and you knew about them, and you cared about them, or you hated them, or whatever. So that when those characters showed up in somebody else's story, in even a minor way, you had this visceral sense that the world has was getting s sort of in concentric circles, sort of smaller and smaller. And I just remember being fascinated by that idea, and I think it was that experience alone in the in the theater of watching over a couple of nights watching that 
that really set the the bug in me to want to tell those kind of stories. But I also started to see that my own life had these rhythms to it, and mm. that, um, this idea that random events are not so random, and that there's meaning in things that feel random, but ultimately, you know, have have a you know a, a payoff to them. I started to explore that theme, and it became something that was um, just a very deep well. I found that the more I explored it, the more um, the more my writing got deeper, and the more I connected my writing with other people, and um, the more people seemed to respond to it. So, I um, I finally uh, with my last my show last show I did called Touch. Oh, it's one of my favorite shows. I, I just, I literally decided then that rather than it being uh, the theme that I was exploring, I would try and make a show where it was the premise as mm. opposed to the theme. Um, so the entire premise of the show was that we were all connected. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, um, I, it's still in Heroes Reborn, it's, it's part and parcel of it because the basic premise of, of, of heroes the, is that this idea of individuals who discover that they are connected to each other and, and by a shared purpose. Um, but I also feel that, you know, in some small way, I, it, I'm sort of a one-issue candidate <laughs> in terms of as a storyteller. I, I just believe that, um, you know, I have one way to contribute to the greater good and, and that is as, as a storyteller hmm. and that um, if I can sort of put a message out of interconnectivity and global consciousness I think those two things are sort of connected to one another um, that the world is much smaller than we than we maybe believe it to be and so that what you do on a even a small way has some impact and that if we were to sort of think of our own lives in that way then maybe we would live our lives in a more conscious way. We would be kinder or more generous or more, uh, you know, more responsible. So interconnectivity just doesn't give us a sense of reassurance. It gives us a responsibility. There's a responsibility to it. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's the idea that what I do impacts you. That what happens, you know, 10,000 miles away impacts, you know. And I think we're all beginning to see this on a global scale. And we understand that you know, we look at something like, you know, like ISIS or, you know, war in Iraq and, and we think, oh, well, that's 10,000 miles away. And um, what does that have to do with problems that are here? And, you know, you have a problem like Katrina and you realize, well, yes, it's about, it's about, um, you know, a hurricane, but it's, it may also be about global warming. And if it's about global climate change, then it's, probably about fossil fuel and if it's about fossil fuel then it's <laughs> probably about the Middle East and if it's about the Middle East then it's about human rights so you start to realize that that all problems may be interconnected to one another and if all problems are connected to one another then maybe all solutions are as well and that's where the idea of your personal responsibility comes into play and, and this was an idea you you actually tried to implement didn't you with, with this uh, concept of social benefit storytelling yeah I, I I started to realize that that storytelling um, that could reach audiences where they lived as opposed to just in a laid sort of layback kind of way of watching on in a passive way on on TV um, that stories can now live 
all around you. Um, you now have in your hand or in your pocket this device that is a not only a content consumption device but a content creation device. So mm. you can you can not only consume content but you can put content out there. So that puts you as a as a participant uh, or you know um, yes a participant in a narrative if we can tap into the idea that you are actually a part of that narrative then you can um, share that narrative with other people and it create a a much more dynamic way of of um, of telling story I I just sort of discovered this last time I did heroes when we discovered this massive audience online that were not only connected to us but they were connected to each other they very simple ways, chat rooms or, or um, more complex ways on social media. And, you know, started to realize that that was a, a huge opportunity to make the story less of a one-way street. It was not just us pushing content out and not really caring what, hap- how it, what happens once it gets out there. It, it suddenly became a, a two-way street where content would come back to us and ideas would come back to us. You could push content out in the morning and by the afternoon you had had sort of a wave of response and mm. and so it started with simple things of us putting you know little clips together that people could mash up and make their own and then share with their friends and and from those simple ideas grew this idea of well maybe there's a way to do um, something good in the world with that idea um, and create a narrative where you are a part of something bigger. So Conspiracy for Good was an idea that we did with Nokia um, and you know, a mobile phone you know, handset you know, designer and a, a manufacturer and, and we created this basically a large transmedia narrative that, that um, you know, their customers could actually get involved with and um, we came up with the idea that there was this sort of fictitious um, uh, secret society that had existed for thousands of years Um, it was a conspiracy for good and that all of the major um, philosophical historical uh, political you know advancements of the last 2,000 years had actually very quietly been a part of this conspiracy for good so people like you know, Da Vinci or Mahatma Gandhi or but Martin not, Luther not, King. But not L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Probably not L. Ron, <laughs> Ron Hubbard. We're, we're, were a part of this conspiracy for good. Right. Uh, they were secret members. And now with this whole idea of, you know, mobile and, and um, this kind of lightsaber of a mobile phone that you had in your hand that could do all these fabulous things, um, you could now be a, a part of that conspiracy for good and the clues to your missions and to your causes and all of that are live all around you and all you have to do is point your phone at certain things with an app that can do a kind of you know um, you know augmented reality or that kind of thing you now lived inside of this narrative right um, and and if you could get uh, you know brands to play along with that then your favorite brands could be a part of that or mm-hmm. your favorite band or you know um, and so it, it, it's a very large, uh, cool idea that we are, you know, trying to f- resurrect. Um, but it was a, it was an incredible experience. It yeah. took, it took. Uh, we worked on it for eighteen months, and 
worked on it from five five different countries. We had um, the narrative itself took place in in London, so on the streets of London. So you could we'd sort of turn London into kind of a scavenger hunt of hmm. walk around with these mobile phones and pointed at various places in the Tate Modern or you know on the streets of Piccadilly, and clues would pop up and videos would pop up and. There was a whole narrative that you were involved with, and um, basically we had to take down a kind of evil, bad guy, villainous corporation who was blocking uh, these libraries in, in eastern Zambia from being built by an, an NGO called um, Room to Read. And we got Nokia and Room to Read to, to, to basically play along with this narrative. And as a result of the audience sort of stopping this fictitious bad guy, we were able to uh, build and stock five libraries in eastern Zambia. Incredible. We donated 10,000 books and uh, gave away 50 scholarships to schoolgirls. So your your participation in a fiction and a fictitious narrative actually ended up having real-world positive results. In some ways, these narratives are taking place anyway uh, on Facebook. I mean, the whole controversy around the killing of Cecil the Lion by the the crazy right, dentist right um, uh, yes you see mo people mobilizing very quickly yeah. around any idea obviously and whether good or bad um, and yes the idea of curating that into a narrative is really fascinating to me hmm. I mean we're seeing the darker side of that with ISIS the ability to curate a narrative around social media you know? and the strange attempts by, by the government bodies to kind of create their own propaganda against ISIS yeah I know exactly which looks bizarre yeah <laughs> and yeah and not nearly as effective hmm. yeah Tim it's been a great pleasure it's good to see you it's yeah, great to great have you to on the talk show to you. thanks very much You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.